BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, life in the time of coronavirus. You know, we've made the healthcare system a big issue. We talk about it every election cycle, but we don't really ever talk about public health until there's a crisis like this. Then, how do we hold an election in the midst of a pandemic? Right now, everybody needs to be working on setting up, you know, agreed upon vote by mail systems. And finally, a recommendation. None of us has ever lived through anything like the past week. Institutions that we took for granted have closed their doors and may stay closed for weeks or even months. Schools, restaurants, theaters, virtually all of professional sports. This is all an effort to slow the spread of coronavirus so that a surge in patients doesn't overwhelm the medical system. But in some places, it may be too late to avoid that outcome. And then there are the economic effects. The economy is shrinking at a pace reminiscent of the 2008 financial crisis. People are losing incomes and jobs already. Ross is off this week, but Janine Interlandi is joining Michelle and me. Janine is the Times Editorial Board's expert on science and health. Janine, thanks for joining us and helping our listeners think through these really confusing times. Thanks so much for having me. I should say at the start that we're all going to sound a little different during this podcast. It's because, of course, we are recording this from home. Janine, let's start here. My sense is that even with the radical changes we've all been making to our behavior over the last few days, many of us are still not taking the situation seriously enough and that we really should be trying to minimize our contact with other people in every possible way. We were way too slow to do that. And given that we were too slow, it seems to me we should be pushing for the most aggressive forms of social distancing for the next few weeks. Do you think I'm right about that or am I being too alarmist? Uh, no, I think that's exactly right. I think we have to look to Italy and and even to look to, to some extent to China and see what's happening there and realize that, you know, we're just a couple of weeks behind that. So, you know, to folks who think that this is just like the flu or who think that this is um, some kind of political hoax or that people are just plain overreacting, you know, they need to realize Italy did not shut its economy down. China did not shut its economy down because they had a bad flu season. They shut it down because they had something much worse. But I guess I'm interested. I mean, should we even be getting together with friends? Should we be having friends inside our houses? Uh, is it okay to socialize outdoors if we're within arm's length of people? Or, or, or I mean, how severe changes should we be making? My sense is really severe. Uh, I think really severe, but I've been trying to employ a sort of really severe uh, within reason. So the first thing to say about that is if you are someone who is immune compromised, who has an underlying medical condition or who is elderly, uh, absolutely really severe. You should stay home. You should not be interacting with people that you don't have to interact with. You should be taking the utmost precautions because you're the most vulnerable. Now, for someone like me, I am younger. I am relatively healthy. Um I don't feel like it's a huge risk to go outside, for example, and go for a walk around the block. You know, I'm not stopping and shaking hands with every person I meet along the way. So I think some socialization is still possible. Um, you know, like I said, going outside uh, is much less of a risk. The things you most want to avoid, even if you're young and healthy, are enclosed areas with lots of people. 
Well, and it seems like going outside, I mean, not just not being a risk is probably good for people. Like all of the stress of being, um, you know, kind of cooped up, especially if you're in a small apartment, um, that's also not great for your immune system. And to me, that's one of the harder things to balance because, you know, there's some of these um, prescriptions have their own downsides, downsides that aren't just about being, you know, bored or annoyed or uncomfortable, but that can themselves make you sick. Yeah. And and the thing is, this is going to go on for a while. I mean, the best estimates are that, you know, you'd see a peak at some point in May. I think we're in actually for a very bumpy rest of this year and potentially full year into next year. And I think if you start out with strictures that are not sustainable, you don't end up in a good place in a few months. So I, I agree with what Michelle said. What is the end game? Like, what is the point at which people say we can slowly begin um, kind of coming back to normal? I think we're still feeling our way around that you know, around this. I think you know this is a virus that we haven't seen before. This is a the scope of this uh, pandemic is something we none of us have seen in our lifetime. So I think it's really tough to predict. You know, to use Trump's I think horrible language, it's going to uh, just wash through our society. You know, over the next several months or whatever. I don't think that's entirely wrong. Like no pandemic lasts forever. Eventually, you know, it it flows through the population and the people who are susceptible get sick and some of them recover and some of them don't. And then you eventually get to a place where everyone who's going to be susceptible has been exposed and has developed immunity and then it kind of fades away and, and it could come back the way seasonal flu does. But, you know, I think you're looking at like I said, about a year for that to kind of play out however it's going to play out. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but it doesn't seem, I mean, social distancing for a year doesn't seem um, plausible, does it? No. I uh, Okay. So the other thing to point out is uh, I don't think any of this seems plausible for a year, but talk to me a year from now and, and we'll see how we did. But um, the other thing to point out is one of the other things we're holding on for is, you know, ideally you put these things in place until a vaccine is developed or until some treatments are developed. And that makes it a little bit more viable to kind of let down our guard a bit. We're still many months away from having something that could be deployed. So again, that I guess that does actually still put us at a year. Um, treatments are probably going to come online more quickly. So maybe six months to eight months. And I, that's kind of a made up number, but it would be more soon, more quickly than, um, than vaccines are. So those are the other things we're holding out for. And I know that's not a satisfying answer, but yeah, we're looking at, you know, six to nine months on the upside and, and a, a year on the longer end of that. You know, is there any reason be, besides just the kind of venality and incompetence of this administration that we aren't seeing massively ramped up production of ventilators and other kind of medical equipment that's in short supply? I, I think the, the big answer to that question is that we've just devalued public health and public health apparatus for many, many years, going back many, many administrations in this country. We've just never made public health a priority. We've always, you know, we've made the healthcare system a big issue. We talk about it every election cycle, but we don't really ever talk about public health until there's a crisis like this. Since it became clear that this that this particular pandemic was happening, um, you know, I've seen factories say that they could increase production of, you know, some of this equipment or that factories could be repurposed to increase production of some of this equipment. And it's just not happening. And it's not clear to me why it's not happening. Well, for that, you need the president to say, I mean, the Defense Production Act exists exactly for these purposes, and, and he needs to do that. You know, all of those things, they need to be directed from the top. What you have right now is 
individual states and cities in bidding wars against one another to buy ventilators. And you have other ventilator companies saying they haven't gotten any orders from the federal government. And if they did, they could dramatically ramp up production. It's just not happening because we don't have our leaders calling for it to happen. How long should people expect this phase is going to last? How many weeks should we assume that basically restaurants are shut uh, in, in major cities and people mostly need to stay in their homes? Uh, you know, I think to some extent that's a political question because the, the decisions are going to be made by uh, by politicians and leaders and, and they're going to make the decisions based on many calculations. But I, I think, you know, when people ask me, when friends and family ask me how long this is going to be going on for, I say, you know, I think you need to certainly buckle down for the next three months. Um, and I think we reassess at that point. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in September, October, November, we're still talking about we're still doing uh, podcasts from our from our bedrooms and living rooms. My goodness. Wow. I hope I'm wrong. You know, yeah. it's it's funny when you cover lots of um, infectious disease outbreaks, uh, <laughs> you get you start to develop this kind of skin of you don't really want to be alarmist and you want to kind of downplay it because, you, you know, you do the first couple of them when you're a cub reporter and everything seems like the world is ending and you want to uh, shout from the rooftops that all these big things are needed and then it fades and it goes away and it's not as bad as we think it's going to be. Um, but for my entire career, it's been, you know, every hundred years or so we get a global pandemic like the one we saw in 1918. So it's, it's not an if it's a when, but if you, cover health long enough, you start to think it's not going to happen. Not that, you know, we want this to happen, but I think this is the kind of the big one, sort of, so to speak. So how are you guys, how are you guys handling this? You mean emotionally or, or, just or all together? Of, I mean, all together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess uh, uh, I'm now, uh, I, my view is that we haven't been taking this seriously enough. And I don't just mean the, the people who say it's all a media hoax. Obviously, um, that whole view and the whole Boris Johnson thing is just outrageously wrong and, and will have real consequences. I mean, even people who get this is uh, real and, and very bad. And I would put myself in that category. I, I think I wasn't quick enough to do this. But um, I mean, basically, yesterday, for example, I, I went into a a single store. Um, I will confess it was an ice cream store, which shows you that I care about mental health as well. Um, I wore gloves into the store. Um, I immediately um, used disinfectant after I came out of it. Um, uh, and that was it. And other than that, I took walks with my family and I did work and I took a bike ride for some exercise. Um, Janine, feel free to tell me that I did something, something wrong there. Um, but that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. And I guess my mental state is fine now, but we're talking about day two, and I definitely think that we're all going to go a little stir crazy. Michelle, how are you doing? You wrote that fantastic piece about your sadness, uh, about what it means for life in New York City. I mean, I, you know, it, it it makes me realize how much how kind of unself sufficient I am, right? Because I sort of really rely on the city to be there for me for all kinds of things. You know, before this, I usually went grocery shopping every day, probably ate at least one meal a day out um, or ordered one meal a day in. You know, I just, I have very few practical material skills and and I live in a tiny apartment um, with my two kids. And so it's been, you know, we have huge advantages over a lot of other people, um, but I have found it, I found it pretty brutal. I think we still have to live our lives. We can't all stay home and hide under our beds. Um, people are going to go crazy if they don't do, you know, some things. And, you know, the things I always keep in mind is 
of course, in some countries, in certain places, young and healthy people are, are also getting sick. I don't want to make light of that. But for the most part, if you're young and healthy, particularly children, you're not as susceptible. Your main responsibility is to prevent yourself from transmitting it to another person. So if you're outside playing basketball and you're a little kid, you come in and you wash up, you scrub your hands and you don't go, you know, hug your grandma until you do those things. And I think that seems reasonable right now. Um, you know, likewise with, like we said earlier, going outside and going for walks, you have to take care of your mental health. Like the idea that we're all just going to stay in our apartments is not viable, even if it's the best course of action, like mental health also matters. Um, and for me, I think, you know, I, my husband and I are both working from home. We've done that before for long stretches. I was a freelancer for, you know, a good chunk of my career. So was he, and we have, uh, we're fortunate enough to have an office in the apartment. So, so that part's good. The tough thing for me is, uh, my husband is a higher level of anxiety and precaution. You know, his the, the the measures he wants to take are slightly higher than the measures that I want to take. So that's a constant negotiation. Um, I smoke and I smoke more when I'm stressed and I know that's really bad. So I'm trying to keep that under control. But it's also my excuse for going outside and my break from the day. And when you're a health reporter and this is happening, you're working seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It's crazy. But my, my uh, relief is I'm going to step outside. I'm going to smoke a cigarette. I'm going to get some fresh air. Well, cigarettes make your lungs more vulnerable. They make you more exposed. And then I come inside and my husband's freaking out because I was outside. So that's the thing that I'm <laughs> trying to negotiate. Um, I have my best friend lives right around the corner. I go to her house in the evening. So I get that break and I don't feel like that's taking a huge risk because she takes precautions as well. So I feel like that's okay. The tough part for me is I have elderly parents. They live in New Jersey and I know that I won't get to see them for several weeks, uh, if not longer. Um, so that part's hard, but you know, we have telephone and, and video calls. So that helps. Thanks again, Janine. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, that one's a, that's a Mount Sinai ambulance that just went down my street. So, yeah. Next up, Michelle and I will consider how to hold an election during a pandemic. But first, we're going to take a quick break. This podcast is supported by WISE, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. Dining in dollars? Doing business in bot. Wherever life takes you, the WISE account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast. WISE is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. Freelancing in France? No problem. Sending money back to mom? Simple. All without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by visiting wise.com slash NYT. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And we're back with just Michelle and me. Coronavirus is obviously a public health story first and foremost, but it's going to affect nearly every part of our lives, including this year's election. Several states, including Georgia, Kentucky, and Maryland, have already postponed their primaries. There was also a messy court fight in Ohio this week over whether that state could postpone its primary at the last minute. 
All of this chaos exposes the risks to this year's general election. Come November, it still may not be safe for people to come out and vote, to wait in long lines, to touch the same voting machines as their neighbors, and so on. We're looking at an election that may be more difficult to conduct than any in memory. And it's happening at a time when one of our two political parties, the Republican Party, has rejected some basic ideas of democracy. Republicans have repeatedly tried to make it harder for people to vote, especially people who aren't white or who are younger. And President Trump has made many false claims over the years about voter fraud. Michelle, I imagine you're thinking a lot about this right now. I think you have the president who's already sent out a lot of signals that he wouldn't consider an election that he lost legitimate. And so an election that's going to be, um, you know, kind of conducted under these emergency measures. You could also imagine a situation in which he claims that, you know, kind of the fact that his voters weren't able to come out at the same rates as younger voters undermines the legitimacy of the election. I just think that anything that complicates the election, when you have a president who is not at all committed to democracy and is completely willing to undermine the electoral process um, to his own benefit is, you know, extremely dangerous, which is why I think at right now, everybody needs to be working on setting up, um, you know, agreed upon vote by mail systems so that people aren't fighting about this and negotiating about this, you know, closer to the actual election. Yeah. And I think if Ross were here, he would say, as he often does, that we're we're kind of getting too worked up and worried about this. And, and there's every reason to expect that we can conduct an election even in a crisis. At least that's what I think he would say. And I would say, OK, well, I don't trust Donald Trump. So let's see it from Republicans in Congress. Let's see. We've already seen Ron Wyden, an Oregon Democrat, and Amy Klobuchar, obviously a Minnesota Democrat, propose a bill to to try to make this election work even with the virus. And um, I think what that looks like is it can't be online voting. It's just not secure enough, particularly given all the Russian hacking attempts. So it needs to be some combination of vote by mail, which in the states that have it, um, like Colorado, works extremely well and lifts turnout. Um, and then al- allowing people to come and vote early. Um, so you can go to a polling place and you can vote early, but you avoid the surge of voters. I mean, the other thing is that this is all stuff that we should have done um, a long time ago already, right? These are all much needed reforms. What I worry about is that that will be the Republican argument against them, right? That you're just sort of using the crisis to push through these things that you've always wanted to do, or, you know, that they will make up stories about how these um, reforms enable voter fraud, which is, you know, wholly untrue, but has been one of the excuses about um, that Republicans have used. I mean, here's the way I would think about it, that our democratic system is we should need to think about that as on par with economic stimulus, right? Like the first thing we need to do is keep people alive. But the second thing we need to do are protect uh, our economy and our democracy. And so I really think the Democrats should basically refuse to pass the stimulus uh, unless it includes um, a, a system for, for making the elections work. Um, let's end on one bit of kind of horse race politics. Um, I think you and I, over the last several months, uh, along with Ross, um, 
uh, have really started to think that Donald Trump had a, a very good chance of winning re-election. Um, uh, there's still a long time between now and election day, but I said last week at our live show uh, that I thought his his chances had really declined in the last couple weeks. I don't know what they now are. How are you now thinking about um, Trump's chances of, of winning a second term? So I, look, I mean, I, I think that they've probably declined, although I was extremely alarmed by a poll I saw that 47% of people approve of his handling of this crisis, which is just breathtaking to me. I think it's it's understandable to me that you're going to have this sort of hardcore um, MAGA cult following, you know, of 35% or so that's never going to budge. But I don't understand how a person who's not, you know, at least kind of QAnon adjacent can look at what he's done and think that he's done a good job, you know, especially if you're remotely aware of how countries like Japan and Singapore and South Korea have handled this and how much better the outcomes have been for their citizens. So, you know, my hope is that the full scale of his bungling will begin to sink in. I'm not sure if that really happens without more leadership from the Democrats. And I understand Democrats not wanting to seem partisan and divisive at a time of serious national crisis. So what you've seen is governors, you know, Democratic governors in California and New York praising the administration when the administration works with them, you know, even as Donald Trump is, you know, going off slamming all these governors who are the only ones who are actually taking care of their citizens. There has to be more democratic leadership in making clear, you know, coronavirus is not Donald Trump's fault, but the fact that we're not mass producing ventilators at a higher rate, the utter collapse in testing, the um, demotion of the pandemic response team that had been in place before 2018, you know, those are things that Donald Trump did. And we're in as dire of a situation as we are because we have this utterly incompetent president who cares more about the stock market and his approval ratings than he does about the life of his citizenry. You know, but somebody has to be making that argument and making it repeatedly, even if Republicans squeal about playing um, partisan politics with the national emergency. So now we want to hear from all of you. Given coronavirus, how do you all think this year's elections should be conducted? How do you feel about the idea of voting by mail? How worried would you be about waiting in line right now? Let us know by leaving us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation where we suggest something to help take your mind off impending apocalypse. This week, it's David's turn. What have you got? Well, I'm worried I'm going to fail a little bit on taking your mind fully off the impending apocalypse. But how about this? For everyone who has kids at home, I'm going to give you something that may help you distract them productively for a little while. Um, So uh, on 9-11, my wife was coming out of the subway right at the World Trade Centers as the plane hit um, and um, then walked uptown to the New York Times uh, where I was. And we um, uh, that week sat down and realized we just sort of witnessed history. And so we made a long recording, um, quite emotional, um, about what we had seen and experienced during that time. 
Um, and in later years, I've been really glad that we have that recording. And it feels to me like we are now living through one of those historical events. I mean, I think our kids will look back on this probably as the biggest thing that happened in their childhood as a news story. Maybe not, but it'll certainly be up there. And so I guess what I would encourage people to do, and we're going to do this in my house, is however you want to do it, sit down with with a, a physical journal, make recordings of yourself, but understand that you're basically living through history right now and record even the small things, how you're spending your days, what you uh, find frustrating, uh, what you're eating, uh, what little joys you've managed to work in. Because my guess is in the future, um, our kids and grandkids are going to want to understand a lot more about what this period is like. You know, you actually gave me an idea. So I think I am unlikely to do that because I just, I mean, even though I'm stuck at home, I don't feel like I have a lot of spare time. If anything, I feel like I have less time because there was a lot of stuff that I used to outsource that now I have to do myself. But I'm also, you know, have two kids who are not in elementary school. And so maybe what I will do is have them keep journals for the next um, month or so until school reopens. Yep. And in some ways, it's it's like whatever kids decide to put in it will be interesting, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things is that when there's huge news going on, even really bad news, kids are often focused on their own lives, understandably. And it can be fascinating to look back and, and see that in later decades. One of the things that I've learned from looking back on the Depression is it's not like people woke up every day and mostly thought about the Depression in every house in America. Um, and so it's it, it'll just be a fascinating time capsule. Okay, so David, what's the recommendation? Keep a journal during this time of social distancing and self-quarantining. It can be in print or in audio or video, whatever works for you. That is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts or ideas, please leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. We want to say a special thank you this week to Kaiser Health News, which has hosted us in its podcast studio for many months. If you're looking for smart, good coverage of the coronavirus crisis, go to the Kaiser Health News website. This week's show is produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Michaela Teodori, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Please be careful out there, and we will see you back here next week. Ready? Let's do it. I'm Michelle Goldberg. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that was great. None from me, other than a good impression of Michelle, James. <laughs>